We're reading, first of all, from the Gospel of St. Mark, Mark chapter 14 and at verse 32, Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with Him, and He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, He said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, He fell to the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from Him. Abba, Father, He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from Me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He returned to His disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, He said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, He went away and prayed the same thing. When He came back, He found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to Him. Returning the third time, He said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Luke, the Son of Man, is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And then we are reading from the epistle um, from the book of Romans, chapter 8, in the first verses of that. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus, Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to live to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we might also share in His glory. Amen. And thanks be to God. Romans chapter 8. I want to spend a few weeks looking at this one chapter, and I'll explain why in a minute, but let's pray. Father, we come to Your Word and to this great chapter of the letter to the Romans, and we want to pray this morning, not just that we'd learn from it, but You would encourage our souls and our hearts. You would refresh us in Your Word that we might live for You, and we might live at peace, for we know we have a great Savior. Amen. I want to spend uh, two or three sermons just looking at Romans chapter 8, and I would really encourage you in the next few weeks just to read it. Read it more than once. If you've got more than one Bible in the house, read it in more than one translation. It is a fantastic uh, chapter. Now, I'll be honest with you, at times the argument and the details in it can be quite confusing, and maybe as we read it this morning, there were bits of it you thought, I'm not quite sure what that's saying. But it is one of those chapters where there are various phrases, there are various expressions that just immediately speak to us. We read one of them this morning. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, right away, that just removes guilt, and we'll come on to that in a minute. It then goes on to speak about the Spirit of God that's given to the children of God that they might cry out, Abba, Father, something of our intimacy with the relationship with our Father. And if you read on in the chapter, it then goes on to talk about future, future glory. I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed, will be revealed in us. Now, there is a, a word of hope in the resurrection of Jesus for the future. And it gets even better than that because it talks about the whole of creation being frustrated and waiting for what God is going to do to the whole of the earth, hope for the whole of the earth. And then there's that great promise, if you read on in the chapter, that all things will work out together for good with those who love the Lord and are according to His purpose. Not all things are good. It's not saying that. This chapter talks about suffering, but somehow through it all, that God can be trusted to work all things together for good. And then it ends with these amazing words. What can we say in all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His only Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not also give us everything else that we need? And then Paul concludes, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither things in the future, nor the powers, nor the heights, nor the depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, those verses alone are sustenance to our souls. And in fact, if, if the letter of the Romans was Handel's Messiah, then the eighth chapter would be the Hallelujah Chorus. 
It's just full of all the amazing things that are promised for us in Jesus. But I want to start by focusing on that one expression. There is no condemnation. See, what Paul is doing in this chapter, in a sense, is he's taking the story and the victory of Easter, the cross and the resurrection. And he's taking the story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and made all that God had done at Easter real to us. And he's giving us words that lift us. Do you ever feel condemned? Do you ever feel guilt-ridden? Do you ever feel that it doesn't matter what you can do, you are just not good enough? Do you ever feel worthless? Do you ever come to church and as you listen and watch other people, you just are left feeling even worse because you feel second class and not really among the spiritual ones and, and just not very good at all? Well, here is a very simple message. That is not what God wants of you. That is not how He means you to feel. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that is what the Spirit reveals to us. Now, this is actually a quite an important theme because we have a society today that does everything it can to avoid condemnation. You know, the favorite expression, I, 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 my, my, my high school said that they were going to make it their school motto, it wasn't me. But it, it really sums up where everything is at the moment, isn't it? I'm a victim, I'm not guilty. What could I do? It was circumstances, I had no choice. Deflection, blame, take it somewhere else, I don't want to be condemned. And if you think this is just in theory and theology, Boris Johnson. He's a great sermon illustration. He's the gift that keeps giving. But what happened this week? Boris Johnson, if you've been on Mars, resigned as an MP on Friday. Why did he resign? Well, he was quite open about why he resigned. He resigned because a committee were about to condemn him for lying to Parliament and he wanted to avoid that conclusion because it might have led to a by-election where the voters would have condemned him, and so he resigned to escape condemnation. Now, before we're too hard on Boris Johnson, that's what so many folk do. They find a way to avoid the judgment because we don't want to be judged. It's one of the reasons we say judge not others because I don't want to be judged. I don't want anyone telling me I'm wrong. I want to be free to live my life the way I want to live, and I don't want anyone ever pointing out. If, if I'm condemned and I, I haven't done the right thing, then obviously the rule's at fault. There shouldn't have been a yellow line in that place. That speed limit is ridiculous. You know, we blame the rules, or we blame the inconsistencies of it, or we do, well, what about him? He's just as bad. Everything we can do to avoid being condemned. But here's the trouble with condemnation. It cannot be avoided, it just moves. What did Boris Johnson do? Did you read the letter he wrote? Well, if you haven't, go and read it, it's online. It's an amazing letter because what he basically says is, 
I'm not guilty. But he doesn't stop there, and this is the problem with deflection, because he immediately goes on to say, well, the committee is biased. It's Harriet Harman's fault. It's Sue Gray's fault. It's the lawyer who didn't like me and tweeted nasty things about me. It's my Brexit enemies out to get me. It's Ricky Sunak's fault. I'm not the liar. They're all the liars. I don't want to be condemned, so somebody else has to be condemned in my place. The blame has to go somewhere. The condemnation will not fall on us, so it must fall on someone else. Now, to take another example, and I'm going to be quite careful here, Philip Schofield. You've been watching that story unpack. I'm really trying to think, what as Christians, do, 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 how do we react to that? Well, if you don't know what the story was, first of all, Philip Schofield some months ago came out as gay. Fair enough, I, it's what he wants to say. And his friends and his co-presenter said they'll stand by him. The only thing I, I looked at that and thought, you're leaving your wife of 23 years, and we're not talking about that. We're only talking about your orientation. And then his brother is sentenced for child abuse. And Philip Schofield condemns his brother. In fact, he goes on to say, I no longer have a brother. He is, he's dead to me. Utterly condemns his brother. And then it comes out, of course, as we know that Philip Schofield was having sexual relationships with someone he'd met as a child and, and, and lying about it and left his wife of 23 years for that. And suddenly, the presenters that were saying that they would stand by him were not standing by him. They were pouring an absolute heap of condemnation on, on Philip Schofield. And of course, Philip Schofield's response to that is to try to appeal to the public to see me as a victim. I'm vulnerable here. I'm a victim of homophobia, whatever else it is. And you see what's going on here. What we're going on here is, is condemnation and, and the fear of it and the deflection of it and all sorts of other things. Passing it on to, to someone else. And now all that seems to happen with that is we end up with broken people and hurting people. Now, one of the reasons I, I was nervous to mention these two cases is there is a danger as we watch celebrity stories or political stories, or whatever other stories that there are there of people doing things that are wrong, that particularly in churches, we can get a little bit moralistic. Well, however bad I am, I'm better than that. You know, <laughs> you know Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, and, we, and we, we love to tell stories about how awful they are because, well, we're obviously better than that, and it makes us feel good, doesn't it? Or the celebrities and what they're up to, and, and we, 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 we look at all of those things because we are essentially escaping our own failures and our own brokenness by looking at somebody else's. However bad I might be, I'm not as bad as that. I haven't done things like that. No condemnation. No condemnation offers Scripture. 
Now, notice what it says here, because it doesn't just say there is no condemnation. It says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus. Scripture isn't saying, oh, well, it doesn't really matter what you do. Everything's relative. Everybody's got an excuse. Everybody's a victim. There's no responsibility. It's not saying that at all. It's impossible to avoid condemnation without pointing and blaming someone else. But what if someone else willingly took the condemnation for us? What if someone else willingly became the victim for us so that there might be hope and forgiveness for me, for you, for Philip Schofield, even for Boris Johnson? What if that was the good news? You know, Romans itself, if you read through the whole of the letter, and it's, it's, it's a difficult letter, but it's, it's perhaps the most influential letter that's ever been written. And what Romans does is it, it takes sin, particularly in its early chapters, very, very seriously. The first chapter is all about how the world has sinned. It's broken, and, and, and Paul lists the godlessness, the immorality, the greed, the idolatry, the sexual lust of the Roman world around him. And you can just feel that as he's sending this letter out, you can imagine Jewish people or Christian people saying, yes, the world is terrible and it's broken. And sometimes folk do that in churches. They get up in the front and they go, how evil it is in society out there. It's all godless and pagan and the schools these days don't do this and the children these days. And You can just hear a lot of religious righteous people saying with Paul, yes, that's them. And then Paul turns around and says, yeah, the world is terrible, but here's the thing. You religious people, you moral people, you know how to live, and you don't live, even by your own standards, never mind God's. And he concludes in famous verses in chapter 3 where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in fact, the example he uses in the seventh chapter is he imagines even a Christian who wants to do the right thing, who really wants to do the right thing, who knows what the right thing is, struggling and finding they're doing the wrong thing. And as you read that in chapter 7, you think, yeah, that's me. I know what's right. I even want to live a right life, but I'm so broken I can't. And I stand at that point feeling condemned. And then it comes here with these lines of no condemnation. Why? Well, because something has happened. Therefore, there is no condemnation. Something has happened because Jesus has taken that condemnation upon Himself. Now, if you find Romans very difficult at this point, you can actually see the same thing in the Easter story, in the gospel story of Easter. Sometimes stories are easier to grasp than, 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 than the words of Paul. But if you think about the Easter story, Jesus dies on the cross. Why does Jesus die? Well, at one level, you can say, oh, it's the fault of those awful bloody Romans, Pontius Pilate, and these evil Romans that did it. 
But even as it tells us that the Romans crucified Jesus, you're left realizing that the Romans in some ways are having to go along with the crowd, and Pontius Pilate is weak because they're all weak, and, and they're sort of driven by the shouting and the yelling and the, the, the fear of a riot. And so there's sort of, Pilate is to blame, but yeah, it's someone else, and Pilate could have pointed at the crowd. The crowd, after all, were given a choice, and they said, free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. They made an evil choice. So it's the crowd's fault. They had a choice, and they made the wrong choice. But is it the crowd's fault? Because they were being manipulated by these leaders, and these leaders, these religious leaders were full of jealousy and, uh, and plotting, and, uh, and so, so it was their fault, and you can see all these structural evils that are going on that end up with Jesus being crucified. But through the middle of all those structural stories is another story, and it's the story of the disciples, the folk that you think would be different. And right through the middle of that story of all that evil is a story of their failure, isn't it? They run away. They let him down. And right in the middle of that is a story of Peter. Peter who wanted to do the right thing. He knew what the right thing was, but the flesh was weak even though the spirit was willing. That's exactly what Paul's on about in chapter 7 and 8. Trying to do the right thing, but he can't. And therefore, he stands in the end condemned and he knows it, and guilt-ridden. He's followed Jesus all his life, but he's got it wrong, and now he's riddled with guilt. And maybe that's where many Christians are today. And so, we're being invited in the Easter story to see sin in all of its systemic, political, religious, corrupting influence, but also recognize that every single person is caught up in it except one. The one person who is truly innocent is taking on the condemnation that there might be forgiveness, assured forgiveness, found in the one who takes the blame. And so, Paul can see in Jesus for those that are in Him, there is no condemnation, not because we're in denial or because we've somehow shed the blame and pointed at them or made us feel better because they did that or mitigated what we've done, but instead, we're able to look what we have done with all truth and in all reality and face up to sin not pass the condemnation on to someone else, but understand that it is taken by Jesus. And that's why the Christian should come always the most humble person in the world, because we understand that we are broken like everyone else, and we understand that we are given this gift, not because we have done better, but because Jesus has taken the blame. That's why we can look at Boris Johnson or Philip Schofield or whoever it is and not feel scoffing and superior because we don't need to pass our condemnation onto them. Rather, we are aware that we are broken like they are and in need of grace. And so we don't blame others for sin. We don't put each other down. We don't judge and condemn each other so that we feel better. Rather, we want to pass on this grace that goes beyond condemnation, for there is no condemnation. But there's more here, and I'm going to skip over a whole load of verses and skip 
to verse 14. Because at the end of this passage, it says this, it says, the children of God will cry out by the Spirit of God, Abba, Father. Now, this is quite remarkable. Abba is an Aramaic word, and, and Jesus probably spoke Aramaic most of the time, and yet all the gospel is recorded in Greek except this one word. Well, it's not the only word, but it's, it's one word that is, is kept there in the Aramaic. So, the word is really important. What is the word? Well, some people translate the word Abba as daddy. It might not be quite daddy. It's maybe a bit more respectful than daddy, but it's what children were taught to call their father, the first word that they would have used for their father. But here's the thing in Scripture, it's only used three times. And one of the time is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the passage that we read where Jesus prays, Abba, Father. He's the only person that prays it in the Gospels. The Father's eternal Son in the context of complete obedience to the Father in the context of being saying he will drink the cup of condemnation on the cross for forgiveness. He will follow not his will, but the will of God. And what Paul says when he uses this word in Galatians briefly, and then here in Romans, he's saying this. What Christ has done in being that son that did not deserve condemnation, but took it on himself, is he has invited us to be caught up by His Spirit into that relationship so that the Spirit guarantees and tells us and reminds us that because of His death, we have become the children of God, and we too have that relationship with the Father, that we can call Him Abba. Why does it matter? Well, it matters for this, and this is the verses in the middle, which just very briefly what is our motive for living? What is our motive for doing the right thing? Well, most ethics are all about law. The Old Testament was all about law. You know what's right, you should be doing it. The problem with that is it's driven by guilt. It's driven by, I better do it or I'll feel bad, I'll feel I'm a rubbish person, or I'll be punished by somebody, or my neighbor will point the finger at me and I'll stand condemned. And that puts pressure on us to do the right thing, but we cannot do that because the Spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. But here's the thing. We are offered in Jesus Christ a new relationship with God. The first thing that says is there's no condemnation. Not just when you forgive your sins and uh, when you confess your sins and, and really work hard at praying, you won't feel guilty. No Paul is saying, there is no condemnation. The category has gone. There is now no condemnation. Not just right now at this moment when you've prayed and you're, you're sort of feeling holy with God, but there isn't any condemnation. Not now, not now, not later, not ever. It's gone for you as a Christian. But by the Holy Spirit, you have a new relationship with the Father who has taken this condemnation on Himself in Jesus, and you cry, Abba, Father. And there, is your motivation now to live for Him, not out of guilt, not out of duty, not out of, I need to do this in order to be a good person, or I need to do this in order to feel better, or I need to do this in order to impress my neighbor, or I need to do this in order not to get into trouble. Because I'm a child, and because I love my Father, and because I'm filled with a Spirit that tells me all the time that I'm not condemned, but I am loved, 
because I know that he has done this for me in Jesus. That is the new motive for Christians to live. Now, they'll not always get it right, but it is a guilt-free freedom to live. As children, says Paul, as children, not as slaves. Not because you have to, but because you want to, because of all Christ has done for you. The message of this for us this morning is that we receive this as a gift, not to go and work at, not to go and worry over, but to feel the freedom that the Holy Spirit gives us. For He has done it in Jesus. The condemnation is on Him, and the Spirit is given to you. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, some of us struggle. We struggle with the sense of failure, and we struggle with the sense of guilt. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to know that there is no condemnation. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to know that there is nothing that all our anxiety or our work or our trying to change our lives can contribute to what Jesus has done on the cross that sets us free. And by your Holy Spirit, let us know that in Jesus Christ, we are your children and we are totally loved, that nothing can separate us from that love. And by your Holy Spirit, give us a new love for Jesus, that we would live in the Spirit for Him, we pray. Renew, we ask, your church. Take from her the sense of failure and fill her again with your Spirit. And we pray for this broken world, Lord. We pray for those that are riddled with guilt to the point of despair. We pray for those who feel the crushing burden of their own failure and sin and are at the point of losing hope. And today, Lord, we pray for all who feel that. And Lord, because we have mentioned Boris Johnson and Philip Schofield, I, I want to pray for them right now, for them and for their families, that they might know your love, your forgiveness, and your hope. But Lord, as we pray for them, we come and we ask for the humility and the grace not to stand as superior, but to stand in humility and to offer to those around us what we have found to be true, that though we did not deserve it, you sent your Son for us, and in him we have complete forgiveness and assurance. Amen.